I wish that every one of you guys could experience a life group like that one. It's an incredible, incredible life group. And uh, they got something special. And they did something amazingly special. I just think that's so cool. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful that we can be here in your presence because we believe you're here. And we pray that now the words of our mouths and the thoughts of our hearts will please you. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Good morning, guys. I'm so glad you're here. And for those who are connecting online, we're glad you're connecting with us as well. We're going to kick off a new series this morning, and I'm going to start it off by talking about a weird word Hope. Hope. I hope the Braves win the World Series and the Cowboys win the Super Bowl. It could happen. There is a God. I hope UK goes down to Athens and upsets Georgia next week. It could happen. Powerful evidence that there really is a God, right? You're doing great. I hope... COVID numbers keep on dropping, and the inflation numbers don't keep on rising. You're with me on that one, right? For some of you guys, I hope I get the job. I hope I get the girl. I hope my post goes viral. Hope is a pretty wussy verb. A dream, a fantasy, a wish, a longing. It could happen, but it might not. could happen theoretically, but it might be a long shot. Flip of the coin, roll of the dice, crossed fingers, desperate prayer. Sometimes the fact that you need hope means things aren't going too well. I hope these treatments work. hope she pulls through. hope we can dig ourselves out of this hole financially. I hope he stops belittling me. I hope I pass the test. Because sometimes if you need hope, you're in a tough spot, right? And hopes, if that's all you got, it can be scary. Because it's a pretty wussy verb dream, a fantasy, a wish, a longing. It might happen, but it might not. Could be a long shot. But hope can do way better as a noun. I have hope. You have any hope? Have you lost hope? I have hope because I got a really good doctor. I have hope because he's a really good teacher. I have hope because the one who has my back is a whole lot stronger and meaner than the people who are after me. So sometimes, as a noun, hope is a powerful word. I have hope, which is way better than it's hopeless. There's hope. We can get through this. We can win this. I can see a light at the end of the tunnel. I know he's coming, and he's strong enough and smart enough to fix this, right? It can be a powerful word when what you hope in is solid. New Testament has these three big words that are linked sometimes, faith, hope and love. And some people might kind of think that that middle one is the weak link. Faith, trust, hope. But not the kind of hope that's a dream, a fantasy, a wish, or a longing, but rather a profound confidence that something is going to happen that is really, really good. And love. Not the kind of fickle love that we dole out, but the fierce, relentless, God kind of love. 
We're going to talk about that richest, strongest kind of hope this morning. We're kicking off just a little tiny series from a little letter we call 1 Peter in the New Testament. We call it 1 Peter because there's a little letter right after it we call 2 Peter. And I think the study is going to be pretty rich because the Apostle Peter is writing to people who are kind of like us, living in a world that is kind of like ours, and we kind of need to hear what Peter has to say. So here it is. Peter's living in Rome. Rome is still there, right? Rome over in Italy. And basically, he is writing to some Jesus followers who are living in what is now Turkey. Rome's over in Italy, Greece is there in the center, and then you've got the churches, quite a few churches back there a couple thousand years ago in Turkey. The Roman Empire was kind of the superpower of their world and a perfect soil for the incredible expansion of the early church. You might have heard of the Pax Romana, Peace of Rome. Peace of Rome not because the Romans were such nice guys, it's because they crushed anybody who disturbed the peace. So they had a kind of peace. And they had this common language, Greek. If you could speak Greek, no matter where you went in the, in the Roman Empire, you know, you could communicate with somebody. And they had these amazing roads. In fact, some of those Roman roads are still in use today, believe it or not. So even without planes, trains, and automobiles, people were getting around. They were very, very mobile. So the Jesus followers were getting around. They were very, very mobile. They were telling people around about Jesus because there were these great roads and this relative peace and this common language, kind of like today. And the authorities, the Romans, kind of tolerated us as long as we didn't disturb the peace. But only kind of tolerated us because in their eyes, we were weird, we Christians. See, our values clashed with their values. Our God clashed with their gods. So they tolerated us some for a while, but they were suspicious. Sound familiar? It should. Time Magazine, June 29, 2016, five years ago, regular Christians are no longer welcome in American culture. Talks about the new vigorous secularism that has catapulted the mockery of Christianity into the mainstream. Talks about teachers being suspended for giving their students Bibles. How dastardly is that? Coaches being put on leave for praying with their kids after a game. That's monstrous. Marine court-martial for posting a Bible verse above her desk. You could imagine doing something as heinous as that, right? Talks about Jesus followers being branded as bigots and haters. They talk about our war on women because of what we believe about marriage and homosexuality and abortion. They talk about attempts to yank accreditation from Christian schools, about defunding or exiling Christian student groups, and about labeling Christian homeschooling as child abuse. Five years ago, way more recent, just been ramping up. Is there Christian persecution in America? Persecution, it says. It says, while Christian persecution is widely recognized in other countries, most don't realize that there is persecution taking place right here at home. It is. Many of the culture wars that have been raging over the last couple of years have targeted the church and Christians and biblical values as quaint, regressive, repressive, intolerant, bigoted, stupid. 
bottom line, our solutions to the problems that vex us all, our answers to the questions that people are asking, they're different. We're weird. Kind of like the Jesus followers that Peter was writing to. And occasionally, back then, the persecution would get intense. Peter was living in Rome under the authority of a guy named Nero. You've probably heard Nero's name because sometimes we name our dogs after Nero, right? He made Jesus followers his fall guy, in part because we were different, we were weird, and they were suspicious of us anyway. One guy described what Nero did to us like this. He says, covered with the skins of beasts, we Jesus followers were torn by dogs and perished or nailed to crosses or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination. In other words, our burning bodies provided light for their parties. In fact, eventually Nero would crucify Peter upside down. Guys, the Bible isn't just about what happened. It's about what always happens. We're living in a world that's at war with God, which often means that our world is at war with us. So these Jesus followers faced many of the same pressures, problems, and pains that we do, and we need to hear what Peter said to them. By the way, how important is Jesus following to you? Would you be willing to be fired because you refuse to violate your Christian values? Would you be willing to be sued by your customers or your clients? Would you be willing to be marginalized by your friends or canceled on the social media? Maybe at times you're tempted to fight back with the same God-dishonoring weapons that they're using on you. How are you doing? We're going to dig into more of that later. Right now, let's get into 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Letter opens up. Here it is. This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, back then, they wrote their letters differently than we write ours. We always open with something like, dear so-and-so, dear Julie, right? The one we're writing to. Back then, they always opened with their own name and then told us who they were writing to. This is Peter. And I'm writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, which are all Roman provinces in, a, in what we now call Turkey. He said he's writing to God's chosen people. How cool is that? He could have said that to you. You are chosen people, chosen by God. And you are. Think about it. Do you think you'd actually be a Christian, a Jesus follower today, if God didn't want you first? If He didn't choose you first? I know God gave us free will, and I know that, I, at least I hope, that you have chosen Him to be your Lord and your Savior. But do you think any of that would have happened if He hadn't wanted you to? Of course not. God chose us. He loves us, and He did everything possible, urging us to choose Him back. If you're listening now and you haven't made a decision to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've got to know that. He wants you. In fact, that's why you're listening right now, I suspect. He's working upstream in your life to set the stage for you to make a decision for Jesus, which He lets you make. We're chosen. But He also says we're foreigners. Living as foreigners, that's weird. 
because they weren't literally foreigners physically. We are foreigners because we are Jesus followers. Did you know that? We're foreigners. If you are a Jesus follower, you are literally a resident alien. Right here, right now. You may be as American as they come. You may have been a Kentuckian for life or whatever. But if you're a Jesus follower, you're a Jesus follower first. And that trumps every other identifier, every other allegiance we might have. We are citizens of the kingdom first. I don't care what they want us to do. If it clashes with what he wants us to do, he wins every time, no matter what the cost. Verse 2, God the Father knew you and chose you a long time ago, and his spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more grace and peace. I love that verse. It really is rich. Do you see the Trinity in it? I tried marking it off for you. God the Father chose you before you were born. Holy Spirit who engineered that second birth, that spiritual birth that opens up an entirely new world for us. And Jesus whose sacrifice covers our sins and bridges that chasm that our sin digs between us and God. Father, Son, and Spirit right there immersing us in grace offering us this mind-blowing peace. Great verse, but I'm not going to settle there. Let's go on to the next one. I'm going to switch over to the NIV. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in His great mercy. Mercy. He's given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Mercy. New birth living hope rooted in the resurrection of Jesus. That verse ought to blow our minds, but it doesn't. You know why? Because we don't get it. We don't think we need mercy. We think we're pretty good just on our own without God. I'm doing fine without God. I'll call on God if I need Him. I'll apologize if, if I mess up big time, but for the most part, I'm doing okay. We think so incredibly stupidly. I don't need His mercy, right? But you know that you will never be the man or the woman that you want to be on your own, much less the man or woman that God wants you to be on your own? Do you really understand that without mercy you don't have a shot? None of us do. It's hard to be dazzled by mercy when we don't think we need it much. Our complacency robs these words of their power. But if we can be the least bit honest, we get an inkling of how powerful that mercy of God is. He loves us anyway. He prepares our forgiveness before we ever ask for it. And He offers us a second birth, a new birth. That's something you can't engineer. You can't birth yourself, right? It takes a parent. And we've got to have a second birth, right? I mean, we're hybrids. We've talked about this before. There's one side of us that's physical. There's another side of us that's spiritual. We have these bodies. We have this spirit. You've got to be born to do life in this world, and you have to be born again to do life in the next. So he gives us a new spiritual birth into a living hope, he calls it which is kind of weird. Hope's huge. 
And people will tell you that you've you got to have food and water and air and shelter to live. But I'll bet you know of people who have food and water and air and shelter who take their own life because they don't have hope, right? Hope's huge. I know on the one hand, the fact that you need hope can sound kind of ominous. In fact, if you need a living hope, you're probably in a pretty dark place. If you need hope, you're probably not doing so well on your own. But on the other hand, the idea of a living hope is cool. Because if you actually recognize that you're in a pretty dark place, having a living hope can make all the difference in the world, right? You know how powerful hope can be? probably know that patients who have hope recover way better than those who don't. That goes for those with addictions. If you have hope, you've got a better chance of breaking its hold on you. Do you know that athletes with hope perform better? Have you ever watched a team lose its hope and quit? I coached for quite a few years. Hope's powerful. Do you know that students who have hope perform better than students who think the task is hopeless? Still takes grit and skill, but hope can bump you over the hurdle, right? Do you know that Jesus' followers without hope are going to get crushed by the troubles that they're going to have in this world, guaranteed? But with hope, especially a living hope, and that living word is kind of an odd modifier, isn't it? I guess it implies that there's such thing as a dead hope, too. When your hope is barely there, maybe, when it doesn't seem like hope is helping anymore, when you fear that whatever hole you're in is insurmountable, whatever foe you're facing may be stronger than the God you thought you trusted in. It's a dead hope, maybe. Or maybe it's just that we tend to put our hope in things that are comparatively dead. We hope in stuff that just doesn't work. Some people put their hope in their money. And that might get you going for a while, but eventually it's going to be a dead hope. Some of us put our hope in our brains, our bodies, or our reputations, and we may get along pretty well for a while, only to discover later we're not as smart as we thought we were, and our bodies always break down. Age, reputations are as fragile as the gracelessness of the people that are watching us. Eventually, all of those are dead hopes, too. Others put their hope in some person or a cause. People will always disappoint you eventually. Causes eventually fade for whatever is the next cause of the day. Dead hopes. Peter anchors his hope in the resurrection. You see, as Jesus followers, we don't hope as a verb. We have hope as a noun. And our hope is not a dream, a fantasy, a wish, or a long-shot longing. One guy said, your hope can only go as high as your foundation goes deep. How much deeper can you go than anchoring your hope in the resurrection of Jesus? It's about as powerful and as transformational as it gets, Right? Peter bolts our hope to the resurrection. He calls it a living hope. No kidding. It's not a wish. It's a conviction. It's a rock-solid confidence that gives a man or a woman courage and strength and peace no matter how tough it gets. Guys, that's living hope. 
And you're going to need it. Because, and this confuses a lot of people, it confuses some Jesus followers. We're thinking, well, he's God, right? All powerful. There's nothing doable God can't do. He's all wise. There's nothing knowable God doesn't know. Nothing's no, so complex that God can't work it out. God is perfectly holy, right? He's never ever going to do the wrong thing. And he's perfectly good. He's never going to do anything capricious or malicious or vengeful. He's perfectly loving. God loves us unconditionally and sacrificially to the degree that he sent his own son to die in our place. Well, if, if God is so powerful and so smart and so holy and so good and so loving, why does life have to be so hard for us, Jesus followers, his adopted kids? God could make our life easier for us, couldn't he? He could protect us from disease and from bullies and from disasters and from persecution. I suspect God could even protect us from the pain caused by our own stupid decisions. Like we parents do for our kids so often. But God doesn't wrap us in bubble wrap. We live in a broken world and we get the same diseases they do and we face the same natural disasters they face. We suffer from the same bullies that pick on them and we get extra pain because we're Jesus followers and our values are different than theirs. So we also get mocked and handed, hounded and canceled for being different when we're courageous enough to be different. And someday we'll understand why God doesn't take away our troubles. But now, out of hope, we trust Him. Because we know He really is perfectly wise and perfectly good and perfectly loving. And so for now, we have this profound transformational hope, a living hope that makes all the difference in the world if we lean on it. Because we know that our broken world will not have the last word. Peter tells us what's coming. Verses 4 and 5, this is ominous. He says, we have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, but it has to be kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded, protected, guarded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. God's kids, you've got an incredible inheritance. It's never going to diminish your faith. That's cool. In other words, what's coming is going to make whatever you're going through now seem trivial. But the fact that it has to be guarded in heaven, the fact that you're going to have to be shielded by God's power somehow till we get there, that's ominous, isn't it? What he's saying is that life's going to get hard, guys. We're in a broken world. He's telling us that there are going to be those who are going to try to drag you away from your inheritance. He's telling us that we're going to have to lean on His power because we're not going to be strong enough to go it alone. In fact, He stops implying and He starts telling it straight in the next couple of verses. Verses 6 and 7, He says, In all this you greatly rejoice, though for now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials were being tested. These trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. I want to snip just that middle piece out from the NLT. 
There's wonderful joy ahead, guys. That's hope. Even though we must endure trials for a little while, and these trials will show whether or not our faith is genuine. You going to hang on? Because in these trials, we're being tested, just like fire tests and purifies gold. I hate that. Don't you? I hate that God isn't going to prevent you from getting COVID or heart disease or cancer or whatever. I hate that even though we're Jesus followers, we can still lose our jobs, lose our house. I hate it that as Jesus followers, we are going to be marginalized and mocked and canceled. I hate it when my kids and my grandkids go through hard times, don't you? And God hates that for his kids too. There is not a tear you have ever shed that God has not felt. But the hard times are necessary for a time in this world. Because God has given us freedom, free will, which we and others around us abuse so often. It's a broken world, guys. So Jesus said, if you want to be my follower, you have to deny yourself. You must take up your cross, your own cross, every day, and you've got to follow me. Because here's the deal. Even though we're going to follow Jesus in this messed up, broken world, we still have this incredible, profound, transformational, living hope. We know what's coming, guys. And if you hang on to that hope and let it empower you, you will come out the other side refined by fire, battle-tested. And you'll have a courage and a strength and a peace and even a joy that others can't touch. So how are you doing on your tests? You've had them. You will have them. Some of you guys will have tougher tests than others, but you're all going to have them. You're going to undergo tests that are going to make you question God. You're going to undergo tests that are going to make you want to push God away, at least for a while. How are you doing on your tests? Are they making you stronger or are they breaking you? They can go either way, depending on whether you lean in towards God or lean away from Him. It's our living hope. I'm going to tell you guys that the strongest, most vibrant, most God-honoring Jesus followers I've ever been around are those who have been through the fires and have come out the other side trusting God. It's not about escaping the pain. It's about getting through them, trusting our God. So Peter says, verses 8 and 9, though you've seen him, you've not seen him, you still love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him. And if you really do believe in him, you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy because you are already receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And I'm telling you guys, there is nothing, nothing better than that. You buy that? One preacher described this a long time ago. He said a real Christian is an odd number. He feels supreme love for the one that he's never seen. He talks every day to someone he can't hear, 
expects to go to heaven on the virtue of another. He empties himself in order to be full. He admits he's wrong so that he can be declared right. He's strongest when he's weakest, richest when he's poorest, dies so he can live, forsakes in order to have, gives away so we can keep. We see the invisible, we hear the inaudible, and we know that which passes knowledge. And that's true because we trust in the resurrection of Jesus, our living hope. We're going to go through tough times. They're in front of us. It's okay. We're Jesus followers. And we genuinely do have that kind of hope. And He gives us the strength and He gives us the courage and He gives us the wisdom and the peace to get through whatever we face, right? He also gives us each other. It's really important that we don't try to do this thing alone. We do it with His power. We do it with the brothers and sisters by our sides. It makes us all stronger. Guys, if you're not a Jesus follower, you need to get it done, right? You've probably felt the Spirit nudging on you, and if the Spirit nudges on you, don't push back. Just go with Him. And so if you want to talk about being a Jesus follower, I'm going to sit right down here in the next little part of the service. We've got an elder praying for you in that prayer room right in the back. Slip back there and talk to him. We'd love to talk to you. Or it may be that you just need a church home. Jesus followers, we're not made to go it alone. We're not strong enough to do it alone. So if you want to talk about making Capital City your church family, sit right down there. Come on, let's talk. Let's get it done. If not Capital City, you've got to find a God-honoring church, and you've got to make it your home. Let's pray together. Father, for your grace, for the hope that can sustain us no matter what comes, we give you thanks. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.